Thank you, Will, and let me uh, offer my words of of gratitude for this church and a hearty, happy, happy birthday, 20th birthday. I've, I've been in Memphis for uh, a while, so I've been able to watch the way the Lord has worked and developed this ministry. I've known and loved Jimmy for a long time. So to get the call to come out here and preach while he's in India was a delight. And then to learn that I had the privilege of following on the heels of my seminary professor and friend, Rich Pratt. So I go from Jimmy Young to Richard Pratt to Rocky Anthony. So I'm just really sorry for that. So bear with me. I want to begin with this question. Um, Do you know what it's like to be in love? It's kind of a fair question to ask the, the day before Valentine's Day. Do you know what it's like to be in love? It's not a rhetorical question. It's a question that a senior pastor from a tall steeple church asked me in a conversation I was having with him uh, just this past week. Uh, It surprised me. It wasn't a question I was ready for. And when he asked me this question, this is a little uh, a variation of it. He asked me, Rocky, what does it mean to really love God? And my first response was, now, wait a minute, you've got a doctor in front of your name. You've been to seminary. You've taught the Bible for many years. Uh, You've been a pastor for a long, long time. Uh, You asking that question is sort of like a mechanic asking what's an engine. But I could tell that there was an honest uh, inquiry behind that question, and so we began to talk about it. And we talked about things like uh, the way that God revealed himself in the Old Testament. And said things like this from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with what? All of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And later how John brought clarity to that question in the book uh, of uh, his, his letter, 1 John Four, uh, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. Or earlier in that same letter, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Or when Jesus said to his own disciples, that the way the world will know that you love me is the way you love one another. And then, like good pastors and theologians, we decided that we were going to define the word love, and we used words like devotion and obedience and surrender. And eventually, we wrapped up our conversation, and he thanked me for the help that I had given him. I felt resourceful. I felt needed. I went on with my day. But you know, the more I reflected back on that conversation the more uneasy, the more disappointed I was with that conversation and my answers to that most basic question. Rocky, what does it really mean to to love God? And I felt very much that my my dialogue with him was, was sterile, was shallow, was lacking real passion. And friend, that was only heightened when I was forced to live with this text in my soul, this text we're going to read in just a moment here. 
Because, see, this story, this encounter from the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, which I'll ask you to turn to now, is a story about a woman who's in love. And if that woman, this woman that we're going to read about, if she was listening in to the conversation between, between me and my pastor friend, she would have, she would have said things uh, about a depth of, of love and uh, adoration and affection and pouring one's heart out fully toward those uh, whom one loves. And she would have brought into that conversation a, a depth of warmth that would have shamed two pastors, uh, I think, deeply. So let me ask the question again. What does it mean to really love God? Seems like an appropriate question to ask the day before Valentine's Day. And before we read this text, what I'd like to do is just to pause and pray. That God would help us to see the, the power, the profundity of this story. And that the, by the time we leave, you and I would be better equipped to answer this most basic Christian question. If you're sitting next to somebody that you love, why don't you go ahead and grab their hand. I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we are capable of so much love and yet we are mindful today that we often love the wrong things for the wrong reasons. Please free us from the idols of our hearts, the idols that we have chased after and filled our lives with. Would you use your, your word this morning to rekindle our love for you? Would you speak to us, O lover of our souls, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. Again, we're reading from the Gospel of Luke, and uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and I understand that some of you have that. Not everyone does, but do your best to follow along. Luke chapter 7, I'll begin reading uh, with verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, asked Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment." Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. 
And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of God. Start with a little background. Jesus, as we read, was uh, invited to Simon's house. Simon was a Pharisee. You know about Pharisees. You know that they were the professional Christians. They were the elite. They were rich. They believed that they were right before God and made right with God through their own obedience, through the keeping of the law, not just the Ten Commandment law, but literally hundreds of other little laws that bound every aspect of life. They were, at least in their own minds, at the very top of the spiritual pecking order. And so it's no mystery that throughout Jesus' ministry, he warred against and had most trouble with the Pharisees. Why? Well, because Jesus came from heaven to set us free from that kind of way of trying to please God. Trying to do good and be good and keep the rules and uh, try to appease God's wrath through our own good deeds. Which was the script of the Pharisees. And of course, for them, the, the better they thought they performed, the better they felt about themselves, which increased their level of pride and arrogance, self-righteousness. And Jesus said, I, I came to, to fulfill the law. I came not to bring condemnation, but to set you free. And so Jesus and the Pharisees were always going toe-to-toe. Their gospel was a completely different gospel. I love this verse from Titus 3, 5. He, Jesus, saved us not because of the righteous things that we have done, but what? But because of his mercy. And so it's not a surprise that not only did Jesus war against the Pharisees, Pharisees that he often referred to as whitewashed tombs. Bright and clean looking on the outside, but death. Nothing inside. Not only did he war against them, but they warred against him. They hated him. But in this case, not unlike maybe the case of Nicodemus, who also took the risk to have a personal encounter with Jesus, this man, Simon, invites Jesus to his home. We don't know what Simon's motive or rationale was. Maybe he was curious. Maybe he was trying to trap Jesus. We don't know. But he invites Jesus to a dinner party at his home. 
And we need to know the new, before we look at the nuance of the text, we need to just stop and look a little at uh, the etiquette of the day. And what Simon did and didn't do that sets up the whole drama of the story. And maybe to put it in context of our day, you will know that etiquette is important. Parents try to teach their children certain forms of etiquette. There's a woman named Emily Post who's supposed to be the queen of Cuth. And according to Emily Post, if you go to a dinner party, children, there are certain things that you're supposed to do and not do. If you drop your fork, you're not supposed to pick it up, for example. Don't make noise when you chew your food. For some of us, that's very hard. Don't lean back in your chair. Don't pick your teeth at the table. You're supposed to excuse yourself and do that. Don't put your elbows on the table. Don't reach for food. Ask politely. In our day, there are certain forms of etiquette that we're supposed to follow. It was the same in Jesus' day, which sets up the drama of the story. In Jesus' day, if someone is invited to the home, the host would follow a certain protocol. Simon knew that Jesus was a rabbi. And so it would have been appropriate, culturally, for Simon to greet Jesus with a kiss. Some of you have traveled throughout Europe, as I have, and you know that's just part of it. Not a romantic kiss, but a kiss on the cheek. Sometimes it's a kiss on both cheeks as a form of a greeting. To put it in a dynamic equivalent, not to do this would be like in our day asking somebody to come for dinner and you leave the door open and when they come, you just sit in your lazy boy and continue to watch TV and they have to come in and you never get up out of your chair to greet them. That's a dynamic equivalent. That's what Simon does. Then the washing of the feet would be mandatory before the meal. We all remember the story of Jesus as he comes into the upper room before he goes to the cross. And though Jesus lived servanthood and taught servanthood, his disciples who had received the servanthood ministry of Jesus were not interested in being Jesus' servants, not to him or anybody else, certainly not to themselves. And so Jesus very unobtrusively goes to the corner, puts on the servanthood outfit, without saying a word, and with a good attitude, one by one washes the feet of his arrogant little disciples. The dynamic equivalent would be like uh, having a guest in your home uh, taking their own dish to the sink and forcing them to wash their own dishes. And then this. It would be appropriate, it would be part of culture and, and the etiquette of the day that the host would give his guest some oil for anointing. One commentator put it this way, it was a very dusty, arid climate and the scarcity of lotion and deodorant, such a gesture would be particularly refreshing. Here's the point, friends. Simon did none of these things. None. He does not give Jesus a greeting. There's no water for his feet. There's no anointing of his head. Everyone there at the dinner party would know that this was a deliberate slap in the face of Jesus, intended to insult him, intended to offend him. And then there's this woman who responds to, to Jesus in such a radically different way. 
And you look at the response of the woman, and you look at the response of Simon, and it begs this question. How could these two people respond to Jesus so differently? They're both in the presence of Jesus. They're both interested in Jesus and want something of him. They both heard his teaching. One of them is transformed and changed. There's an outpouring of love and joy from her life. The other remains distant and cool and detached. One is sent away condemned and confused and a little miffed. The other is sent away totally transformed and blessed. And as I thought about this passage and carried it with me, I thought about this simple question. What made the difference? And I'll tell you why that matters. I'll tell you why that matters. Get this. Because as we sit here this morning, friends, we are in the presence of that same Jesus. And we will leave this encounter with him one of two ways. Our hearts will be transformed. There will be an outpouring of love and devotion, obedience. Or like Simon. Aloof, cold, maybe our hearts will become even more distant. And of course, I'm wondering, how will you leave? Where is your heart? That's the background, some cultural practices. Let's walk through the story. You've heard it. A a, a woman hears that Jesus is in town. She's at the home of the Pharisee. And she she goes and she gets this, this alabaster flask. And she runs to Simon's house. You need to know it was not just Simon who was breaking the social etiquette of the day. This woman was breaking every conceivable uh, uh, etiquette uh, for, for women of that day. In those days, women were not inv- invited or accepted at banquets. They were second-class citizens. Jewish rabbis did not speak to women in public. They did not eat with them in public. Certainly, a woman like this never would have been allowed near a a rabbi or or a teacher. And though her sins are not named, we can only imagine, because she's a prostitute, she's a woman of the city, so that when Jesus says her sins are many, everybody knows exactly what he's talking about. She lived in the Red Torch District. She had a story. And yet, she knew in her soul that there was a deep desperation, a need. She knew she was a sinner. She was deeply convicted by her sin. She approaches Jesus in spite of all the strikes against her. And so Jesus perceives that as this woman pours out the ointment and cries and, and, and wipes the dust from his feet, that Simon, taking all of this in, has a high level of disapproval about the whole scene. And it's rather ironic that Simon comes to the conclusion, I don't think that you're a prophet. And he's thinking this to himself. Because you're allowing such a woman to touch you, Jesus. And in the irony of the story, verse verse 40, Jesus answers Simon. He answers his thoughts. Not his words. And he says, Simon, I want to tell you a story. 
And whenever Jesus says something like that, we need to pay very close attention. But what, because what's about to come next is really good, always. And Simon's response is, say, teacher, let's hear your story. And I'll just summarize the story. The story about two debtors. One owes uh, 500 denarii. That was about an annual wage for a, a worker. The other owns 50 denarii. And that's about uh, a month's wage. And the important thing about these two debtors is that neither could repay the debt. And in, a, in an odd twist of fate, as Jesus tells the story, uh, both of these debtors had their debt forgiven. Amazing. And Jesus asks Simon, hey, Simon, question. Which of these two debtors do you think had more love in their heart for the banker, for the one who forgave the debt? And again, it's important to put yourself in the story. I, I picture Simon trying to figure out, now, is this a trick question? And he says, basically, uh, I guess it was the it would be the one who had the largest debt forgiven, Jesus. I guess that would be the one who would love the most. And then Jesus says, you're right, Simon. And then Jesus turns to the woman, but says to Simon, Simon, you and this woman are those two debtors. Don't miss the point of this story, Simon. From the minute I came in this room, this woman has showed me love. She has showered me with attention. And you've not. And again, friend, one of the important takeaways from this story is this. It teaches us that love for Jesus is not mere intellectual assent. It is not about just sterile obedience and doing the right thing. It is about extreme love being poured out in extravagant ways. It's the decision to be strategic and intentional about our devotion and surrender to Jesus Christ. It is bringing all that we have and all of who we are to him. And you might be thinking, wow, that's a big statement, Rocky. Thank you. That's kind of overwhelming. How do I, how do, I do that? How do I even get there? And in the few minutes we have left, what I'd like to do is just use this woman's story, her way of relating to Jesus, as a roadmap for us on how we might respond to Jesus with extravagant love. And I pointed out to Will that there's very little room in your sermon note section of your bulletin, which I took a little offense at, Will, but that's all right. But if you want to jot these down, here's the first one. This woman, this unnamed woman who we'll meet in heaven someday, loved Jesus with intentionality. She loved Jesus with intentionality. She learns that Jesus is at this home, and before she goes out the door, she sees this flask. And this is, this is not one of those small little uh, gift flasks, little gift uh, bottles that, that you'll get at Christmas time as a sample. That's one of the things I always do for my wife at Christmas time. I go bum all the little uh, cosmetic counters. I look like a sad little puppy. And I just, can I have some gift samples, please? You know, and they give me those. I get her other things, but I, I get those. I try to pile those in her, in her stocking. That's something I do every day. It's not like that. Another gospel said this, this uh, alabaster uh, 
an ointment, probably weighed a pound. It was maybe an heirloom. Some scholars suggest that it, it may have been something she was saving for her dowry to maybe get married one day. But we know this. It was absolutely the most valuable possession that she had. And as she walks by it, maybe she says to herself, I wonder, I wonder if Jesus would be blessed by this. Her heart is so filled with love, she takes the flask and she breaks it out and pours it on Jesus as an outpouring of love for him. And I think about my life and I think about how unintentional I am in my loving service rendered to Jesus and to others. I'll tell you this, I am always open to other people loving me that way. Always open to that. But I can't think of the last time where I began my day thinking, Lord, today I'm going to be thoughtful. I'm going to be strategic and intentional in the way I love others, love you by loving others in my life. And you may wonder, well, what would that look like? I'll give you an example that's very fresh on my mind. I had lunch with a good friend. I've known him for 20 years. Uh, we had lunch this past Thursday. He's a business owner. He's a busy guy. Has a son getting married this summer. But he was burdened by a story that he heard. a story about a Hispanic mother who's dying of breast cancer. She has three sons. Single mom. And her one cry, her one plea was, keep my boys together. Keep my boys together. She's now on hospice. And now with her pleading and with the help of two other couples, uh, they pursued custody of these boys and were just recently awarded temporary custody pending uh, a planned permanent legal custody hearing in juvenile court. So here's my buddy, nearly 60, who is in the process of redoing his entire upstairs in order to accommodate these three boys, in order to keep them together. 15, 13, and 11. And to see the joy on his face as he told that story, it was exhilarating and it was convicting at the same time. As I tell that story, you may listen and say, that is so over the top. There is no way I could ever do something that radical. It may be, maybe for you, it's, 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 it's simply looking at the, the ministry opportunities through Grace Evan and saying, you know, this precious time that I, that I protect so tightly and so carefully, maybe it's giving up some of that time as a, an expression of my love for Christ. Maybe it's mentoring uh, uh, the child of a single mother Maybe it's giving up some resources that are just sitting there for my own security and giving those to be a blessing to somebody else. I don't don't know what it looks for you, but for this woman, I can tell you this. 
there was a purposefulness in the way she loved Jesus. She loved him with intentionality. Secondly, and very quickly, she expressed to Jesus a courageous love, a courageous love. She walks right into hostile territory, broke all the etiquette, all the conventional wisdom of the day, and basically says, I don't care what anybody else says or does, I am going to pour myself out as a love offering to the Lord. And she did it. I don't care what the Pharisee says, I don't care what Jesus' disciple says, I'm going to do it. Now think of the difference in this moment about the, the difference between this woman and Simon. And I would say the problem with Simon, that Simon, among other things, he lived in what I'll call this morning a Jack Horner world. Remember that story, little Jack Horner? I'll recite it for you again. And some of you will pick this up. Little Jack Horner sat in a corner eating a Christmas pie. He stuck in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what? What a good boy am I. It's a little liturgical moment that we had right there. That was good. I've secured my success. I'm great. I'm, I did it myself. What a good boy am I. And yet, when you reflect back on that story, um, I've got a couple questions about it. First of all, what's little Jack doing in the corner? And I think about every time I've ever seen a picture in a nursery rhyme of little Jack sitting in the corner. He's got a whole pie sitting in his lap. I've never known a mother to give a son who's sitting in the corner a whole pie. And he goes into the pie and he pulls out a plum and he's taken all, all this credit for something he didn't do. His mom made the pie. And then he's eating the pie with his fingers. I've never known a mom to allow a kid to eat food with his own hands. And then after all this, all this broken etiquette and stuff that he shouldn't have done, what's the refrain? What a good boy am I? What a good boy am I? What a good boy am I? Doesn't make a difference how I get there as long as I get there. We live in a world like that. Simon is a man who is self-assured and self-justified as he assesses his own good needs, his righteousness. He doesn't see himself as a man in need of mercy and grace. He is the ancient little Jack Corner who's able to overlook and rationalize his sin and come to the conclusion, what a good boy am I. I did it myself. You know anybody like that? Think for a moment how many times over the years that some of you have sat in this very sanctuary or maybe in a retreat setting, maybe country place. Maybe it was young life. Maybe it was Emmaus. And you had this profound encounter with Jesus. And you made this commitment to him. Jesus, I'm going to live for you. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what kind of pressure I encounter. I'm going to live for you. I am sold out for you. But then the next day, you move into hostile territory. Maybe that's your workplace. Maybe that's your school. Maybe that's your circle of friends. Maybe that's your family. And the temperature gets turned up. And suddenly your convictions and commitment to follow Jesus starts to wane and fade. 
and you become quiet and determined, it's just easier to fit in and be accepted than it is to stand strong for Jesus. I love it that this woman determined that she was going to live out a courageous faith, an intentional faith, and a courageous faith. And then we'll close with this, that she loves Jesus with an appropriate faith. An appropriate faith. Verse 47, Therefore Jesus says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, and they were, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And it's this picture of the gospel that Jesus came into the world to take on all of your sins in mind. And that in spite of your sins and the brokenness and the rebellion and the hostility and the spiritual ambivalence, he continued to come after you and after you and after you and after you. To love you well and to keep pursuing you and loving you well. And those who have received that love and who swim in that love and who realize that that love has washed away the mountain of their moral debt and sin. Those who realize that love much. But those who think they only have a thimble full of forgiveness that's necessary love very little. Jesus tells another story about the parable of the unmerciful servant. It's the same message. How could you who has been forgiven such a huge debt, go out and stranglehold somebody who owes you lunch money. Friend, we, we say it every time we say the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Jesus says if you, if you forget everything else, Just remember this. Love each other just as I have loved you. What does it mean to love God? It's to love Him intentionally and to love Him courageously and to love Him appropriately, knowing all that He's done for us. Glory be to His name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to respond like the hymn writer of old, that in light of all that you've done for us and are doing for us, that you would take our lives and let it be consecrated wholly to thee. We ask that you would set us free to love well as we have been loved well by you. We who have been forgiven much. Help us to love much. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.